Hey there, I'm Adam Demetrician, the lead pastor at Pathways Church in Appleton, Wisconsin. And this is our podcast. I hope this message inspires you, feeds your faith, and ultimately leads you into a growing relationship with Jesus. The only thing constant in life is change. You may have heard that. It's from a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus who said that about 600 years before Jesus was born. And we all know because we experience changes that life just brings changes. And, and some people, if I were to do a show of hands, some people love that. Some people are like, man, I get so bored when my life is the same. I embrace and, and celebrate new changes. I'm one of those people that really uh, doesn't like it, which is why I think it's funny that God gave me this topic to have to talk about new beginnings because <laughs> I think he hates me because he's made me talk about it. It's just, just a joke. But the reality is sometimes changes in life are a good thing, and then sometimes they're not so good, right? Um, sometimes there are changes that we, we choose. For example, you get into a relationship with somebody, and you decide you want that relationship to have more permanence, so you decide that you're going to get married, and so you put a ring on it. Sometimes you choose to make a career change, and you're going to apply for a job and maybe start a new position at a new company and, and go on this new beginning of a new career, Sometimes we decide that we want to uh, expand our family, so you decide that, man, I want to have kids, and you decide to do that, decide to have kids, or whether that's uh, naturally or through adoption, you expand your family. Sometimes we make the choice to um, change the direction of our life by enrolling in school, or maybe you're enrolled in school, and then you decide, I'm going to choose a different change. I want to switch my major while you're in college. And then there are some people that choose to cheer for horribly inferior football teams that just don't cut the mustard. And, and I, I don't, I'm not judging him because of his choices. <laughs> That's paybacks last week. So sometimes, obviously, like I said, there are changes that we choose. And then there are sometimes that changes come to our life that we absolutely do not choose. A health crisis, getting fired or laid off or downsized, experiencing a breakup or an accident that might leave you impaired. We all know that we experience those kind of changes too because life can be hard. And whether you're a Jesus follower or you're somebody who's here or watching online, you're like, I don't buy any of this God stuff. If you have a pulse, I would put money on the fact that your life has been impacted by changes that you maybe saw coming, changes you chose, or changes that you never saw coming that forced you into a, uh, a new beginning or a, a new chapter that you really did not want to have written. And then there's a third category for changes. There are changes that happen around you that somehow change you fundamentally on the inside. You know what I mean? That change you in some profound way, whether it's a crisis or a betrayal or a trauma or an abuse, an attack, an injury, an unexpected death. And the question that typically surfaces in the midst of these kind of change snapshots is why? We ask the question why and we can get stuck in that moment, reliving it over and over, and we can unknowingly reject the ability to be healed because we cling to our pain and we can't seem to find a way to let it go and experience healing or freedom, 
Because sometimes the only way we could perceive healing coming is if we get an acceptable answer to the why question. And so we can get stuck for weeks and sometimes months and sometimes people for the rest of their lives are stuck because they never get an adequate question to why. C.S. Lewis says, getting over a painful experience is much like crossing monkey bars. You have to let go at some point in order to be able to move forward. But sometimes this side of heaven doesn't offer us a good, acceptable answer to the why question. And I would propose that sometimes we need to pivot to a different question. And that question is, what now? That's the question we pivot to. What now? God, in the midst of of everything that's going on, what now? What am I to do with this issue? What am I to do with this this pain? What am I to do with this grief? What am I to do with this surprise twist and turn that has come into my life? And by asking the what now question, we can be a part, it can be a part of serving us and being able to, to, to let go and prepare our hearts to be able to move forward in the direction of God's new beginning for our lives. The space created by asking the what now question, I think sometimes is the space where the divine wants to move in and invite us to a new beginning. So as you sit here this morning, thinking about life and changes and where you are, is anybody here ready for a new beginning in your life, a new beginning in some relationships, a new beginning in your faith walk? You're looking for something new. I think you've come to a good spot to explore this topic today. Today, we're launching a brand new series called New Beginnings, and it's going to be studying the book of Ezra. Ezra is this Old Testament kind of obscure book that a lot of times we skip over trying to get to Nehemiah and talk about the rebuilding of the city walls. But we're going to spend the next several weeks allowing this book to kind of serve us as a guide on how we navigate new beginnings in our own lives. So if you have a Bible with you or you have a device, I want to encourage you turn it on, open it up, flip to Ezra, and we're going to start right at the beginning, chapter one, because it's a new beginning, and why not start at the beginning? So I'm going to read this to you. This is the first five verses of Ezra chapter one, new beginnings. Verse one, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Verse 5, then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. That's the new beginning. How you guys react is about how I felt when I read that. You're like, doesn't seem like much of a new beginning. 
I mean, is that something that we're be excited about, Gary? Because I feel like you kind of built us up and then you let us down, Buttercup. Well, here's what you need to know. Um, these first five verses that we're reading are jumping into the middle of a movie that has been taking place for generations, for a lot of years. And God, in these first five verses, is once again inviting the children of Israel to engage with him in the adventure of a new beginning. But how many of you guys know this is true? If you don't recognize where you are in life or the currents that have brought you to your current situation, I think there are times it's really hard to see that there's a new beginning on the horizon or that you're invited to a new beginning because you're clueless about where you are, how you got here. So for the significance of these five verses to mean anything, I think it's important for us to go back and visit the history that led up to these five verses that we just read about. And the history is this. God's people, the children of Israel, for 70 years before the writing of those words we just read, that nation had been taken into Babylonian captivity they had been in exile. And you're like, well, what does exile mean? Exile means they got their hats handed to them. They experienced an incredibly dark, difficult season of life where they were crushed. Many of them were killed. Most of them were kidnapped. In fact, the kidnappings took place in three waves. The first wave, the king and the Babylonians came and took the royal family, all the servants. They took some of the cream of the crop, the young, the wise, the powerful influencers, and carried them off to Babylon. If you remember uh, us in our Christmas series, I talked about Daniel being a wise man, and he ended up consulting with King Nebuchadnezzar and becoming the leader of all the wise men. That's the kind of caliber of people that were taken in that first wave. And then in the second wave, and then in the third wave, the Babylonians took all the men of valor, all the soldiers, all the craftsmen, all the skilled trade people. And by the end of this third wave and the siege that had taken place in Jerusalem, the only people that were left were those that were poor and had nothing that the empire felt was of value. So they were left there to tend to the vineyards and to die. The people of Jerusalem the children of Israel had their lives devastated. And there are stories of this devastation that would just turn your stomach and break your heart when you read about it in Lamentations and you read about it in some of the other chronicles of the Old Testament. Their towns are burned to the ground, basically bulldozed. And the Temple of Solomon, which was perhaps the most precious landmark to this group of people, was destroyed. This temple symbolized for them God's presence being with them. And it's looted. All of the gold vessels used in worship ceremonies, the king from Babylon takes those vessels and chops them up into pieces. The temple is left in a, in a pile of rubble, houses leveled, left in ruins, not to mention the devastation to the hearts of these people that experienced it firsthand. And there's something kind of important and challenging that I think you need to know about this story. See, the captivity of God's people 
at the hands of the Babylonians did not happen by chance. This was not an accident that just kind of came up out of the blue. God allowed the Babylonians to conquer them and to discipline them in hopes of ultimately trying to save them. God had sent prophet after prophet for generations to warn the children of Israel about the cliff of their wanderings and their rebellion and their idolatry that was going to lead them into a world of pain. And so these prophets would come up. They would deliver this message on behalf of God saying, come back to him. Turn from these other idols and these other gods that you think are gonna give you life, but they're just gonna bring you pain. Come back to me where I have life. And when these prophets delivered these messages, it wasn't subtle. Like some of us pray, God, give me a sign. And then we feel a cool breeze and we're like, is that God or is that a polar vortex? I don't know. Or you say, God, give me a sign. And then you hear a song on Q90 and you're like, is that God or is that just a bad playlist? I don't, I don't know. When it comes to the children of Israel and these messages that the prophets were delivering, they were explicit Like, look at what Jeremiah says when he speaks on God's behalf to the children of Israel and he warns them, saying, you guys got to turn your ways. You got to come and chase God instead of the direction that you're going. And he says, if not, this is the warning. I will give all Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon who will carry them away into Babylon or put them to the sword. I will deliver all the wealth of the city into the hands of their enemies and all its products, and all its valuables, and all the treasures of the king of Judah. They will take it away and plunder and carry it off to Babylon. Pretty vivid warning given by the prophet Jeremiah. And still the people turn a deaf ear to the voice of God and continue to go in the wrong direction. So God allows their self-destructive choices and the Babylonians' rule to be a tool to discipline them. Because disciplining is something that a good father does. If you're a parent, you understand that there are times you have to step in to try to course correct with your child, and it's never done from a power up, trying to break and destroy their heart and their soul, but it's to hopefully develop them and and correct them and grow them in the right directions. And so as you read this story and you understand the, the, the context of the history, you might be thinking, dude, that is whack. Why would God allow this family's to be dispersed, for this nation to be taken into captivity, to have this temple destroyed? destroyed? What, what's up with that? I, uh, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I shared about having to get a root canal. I had to go to uh, a dentist in Oshkosh, periodontist, several times to get this root canal worked on it. And on one of my trips uh, to Oshkosh, I'm coming down the highway 41, doing 70, 75-ish, and I go to get off the ramp. And as I'm getting off the ramp and about to enter these roundabouts, I notice this black car and this older gentleman exiting the roundabout too early and coming towards me on the exit ramp to get off the highway. And I'm like, okay, what do I do? Your mind goes a million different miles in a lot of different directions going, okay, what can I do? So I start flashing my lights at him and he's continuing to come at me as I'm trying to get off the highway. I'm honking my horn. He's ignoring me. I finally put the car in park and I'm like, all right, what, what do I do? 
So I put the car in reverse because he's continuing to come, and I kind of try to turn my car a little bit, and he basically tries to steer around me. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, do I run into him? Would that be the right thing to do? Because I'm like, if I disable his car, if I could give him a flat tire, maybe it'll save his life, right? He's about to go onto the highway, or maybe it's going to save the life of the minivan family that's coming down Highway 41 a few moments later and potentially going to be in a head-on collision. I think that thought process is a little glimpse into sometimes how discipline works and how the Lord works in, in our lives. Because while it may disable us or may wound us, ultimately, the goal is to try to save, to try to save and restore and, and meet us. And this, my friends, is a hard, difficult truth that we find in Scripture that I don't like to talk about, that church doesn't like to talk about, and it's hard to live through. The Lord's discipline. Sometimes the Lord disciplines us by allowing the consequences of our choices to be this redemptive tool in our journey back to him. But it's never sadistic and it's never punitive with the goal to just crush and break us, to humiliate us. I want you to look at what the end goal is of the Lord's discipline. Uh, discipline is found in Hebrews 12, 11. It says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Those are two elements I think we'd all say we want to have. We want to have righteousness. We want to have peace. We want to have right standing with God. But sometimes it comes as a result of discipline. But here's the thing, not every hardship that you face, not every difficulty that you are experiencing means necessarily that, that, that God is disciplining you or that he's using these hard, difficult situations because he's trying to discipline you and get your attention. It could be that you're smack dab in the middle of God's will for you and life is just hard. When Jesus says, in this life, you're gonna have trouble, he probably means in this life, you're gonna have trouble. And so then he wants to meet us in the middle of that suffering and in the middle of that trouble to let us know that his presence is enough for us in the middle of that suffering, whether you're in the valley of suffering or you're standing on the mountaintop. But what this whole concept does is it begs the question for me, how do I know if I'm being disciplined by God, if I'm facing tough, difficult situations, or I'm actually paying stupid tax for my poor choices, and I'm experiencing the consequences of those. Like, how do I know? If it's life just being hard, if it's God trying to get my attention, or it's just the consequence of my choices. And my answer to that question is, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you, you, you don't know. There are times I think the Holy Spirit makes it very clear and evident because he convicts you. He brings your eyes to uh, see something that you've been doing that is wrong and he, he convicts you and you, you sense that and his invitation to draw you back, but it's always to draw you back with his loving kindness to be repented and then forgiven. Sometimes God uses his word to discipline us. 2 Timothy uh, 2, 3, or 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture is God-breathed 
It's inspired. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Sometimes you read a scripture that kind of just smacks you upside the head. You ever found yourself running your mouth about something that you really shouldn't be running your mouth, and then you go in your chair time and you read something from James that talks about how the, the tongue is like a rudder that steers these mighty ships, and it could be destructive, and it could have all these consequences with how you use your mouth. Well, that's sometimes God's word disciplining us and opening our eyes to some things that we need to do differently. The only way I think you can really effectively answer the question of, is God disciplining me? Is this just a difficult season of life? Or is this consequences of my bad choices? Is to visit that question we talked about earlier. We pivot back to the what now question. Because when we pivot back to the what now question, whether life is just hard, whether it's a consequence or it's disciplining him, asking God what now is saying, God, what do I need to do now? What do I need to learn right now? What are you calling me away from right now? What are you calling me, what are you calling me to? What now helps posture our hearts in a way that if we're honest, I think he will speak to us. There's just a lot of times that I don't want to hear what he has to say because I'm enamored with my idol or I'm comfortable with my life or I'm convinced there are certain things I need in order to be happy and I can be blinded by my stubbornness or I can just flat out not trust that he has my best interest in heart. In all likelihood, as we look at how people have navigated these seasons of new beginnings, there's times they wondered whether God had their best interest at heart. We spent the last several weeks looking at the life of Peter and how he navigated the redos and the failures that he had and how God pursued him, pursued him in the midst of his darkest, hardest moments to bring him back. And that's just a picture of his mercy meeting us and inviting us into a new beginning in the middle of our difficult moments. That God doesn't just kick us to the curb when we blow it, doesn't just kick us to the curb when we've ignored his voice calling us, but he moves towards us to restore us and invite us to a new beginning. Look at what first Peter, Peter wrote these words when he talked about this God of mercy meeting us to re Restore us. He says in verse 5, um, verse 10, chapter 5, he says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. That in the midst of our disciplining, in the midst of our life's difficulties, in the midst of it all, God even when we have suffered sometimes, he's on the move to restore you, to make you strong, to make you steadfast. And that's what happens in this story. God moves to restore the children of Israel. After 70 years of devastation and generation after generation dying under Babylonian oppression, there's a change that takes place. And that's what we find in these first five verses. There's a major shift in world powers. King Cyrus ends up conquering Babylon. 
King Cyrus comes for Bersha. He takes over, and the stage is now set for this new beginning, and that's where we find ourselves in those first couple of verses. What's kind of interesting, maybe a little bit shocking, is this king, Cyrus, takes over the enslaved people, and he decides that he is going to invite God's people to go back to their homeland. And you start to wonder why. He's got these people that have been here for 70 years. Why would he send them back? Why would this pagan king let them return? It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But then when you look at verse one, let's read it again. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word that the Lord had spoken by Jeremiah, catch this, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make this proclamation. The reason he did it, because God had moved on his heart. Just as God was behind the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar to serve as discipline for his people, after a little while, I don't know if I call 70 years a little while, but after a while, God, whose end game was always to restore and save his people, he moves the heart of this pagan king. And then it goes beyond that. It wasn't just God moving on the heart of this pagan king. He also moves on the heart of his people. Look at verse 5. It says, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, they prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Some of the people in Babylon would return home to rebuild, to rebuild the temple. And you might be thinking, yo, Gary, there's, there's 12 tribes of Israel. You just named three. So why were only three named? Why didn't everyone want to get out of Dodge and go back and, and rebuild the city and rebuild its temple? The reality is, is most of these people who lived at this point after 70 years had probably never been to the homeland. The only life they had known for 70 years was living under Babylonian rule. At this point, they had built their lives, their families, their businesses, their homes, and they were probably comfortable there. And then to be invited to go back and return would be to sign up to go hundreds of miles. Did you notice the terrain in that bumper video? Hundreds of difficult miles that would have to be traveled with a caravan of lots of goods that were gonna have to go back to facilitate the building of this temple, which makes them a highly likely target of robbery and bandits that often would murder and just take things. There's a lot of risk involved in them going back to rebuild, not to mention showing up in Jerusalem and seeing nothing but debris. You can see why that may not be an exciting proposition to most people. That's probably why not many of them returned initially. Out of the hundreds of thousands of Jews that were living there in Babylon, you'll find out later as we go through the story, about 50,000 of them decide to go back. So why did those individuals make that choice? Why did they take the risk? Why did they do that? It's because, as we read a moment ago, God had moved on their hearts. In the same way he had moved on the king's heart, he moved on their hearts and gave them this idea, gave them this, this, this vision, gave them this desire and this endurance to say, I want to go back and rebuild. He had spoken to them. And as we enter this series for the next couple of weeks, this is a great place for us to just pause for a minute and say, God, what are you wanting to speak to my heart? 
Are there some things you want to stir inside of me? Some things that you want me to be a part of rebuilding and doing? They had a choice to make. While God had spoken to them, they had a choice to make as to whether they were going to respond to that, and you have a choice to make. They had a choice to leave their comfort, a low-effort lifestyle at this point, the risk of travel, and you have a choice to make when it comes to this question of, will you be responsive and open to how the Lord may want to stir your heart today or through this series? And the answer to that question isn't simply answered by you attending a church service. You can be here every Sunday with your butt in the seat, but the question is always, does God have my heart? Does he have permission to speak and move on my heart, to open my eyes? Because sometimes the idea of of this new beginnings is really a, a romantic, fun idea, and it sounds exciting, and then sometimes... God invites you to a new beginning and you look at it and you're like, whew, that is hard. That is a difficult road that you are stirring my heart to. Do I want to do that? Can I do that? Are you going to go with me? Are you going to equip me? Are you going to give me the strength and determination to be able to walk that difficult path? So that's the question this morning. Are you willing to open your heart and your life to the work of the Holy Spirit to allow God to move you? Because you have to answer for what God is calling you to do. And what God is calling you to do may not be what he's calling somebody else to do. And so you can't get mad when they don't have to do or they're not doing what God's called you to do. You're responsible for what he puts in your heart. Because some of them had their hearts moved to say, I'm going to go back and build. I'm going to be a part of rebuilding this temple, of rebuilding this city But did you catch in verse four, it said that those that weren't stirred to go and do the work, those people that weren't stirred to go do the work, what were they to do? Tap out and do nothing? Nah, they were to provide them resources and livestock and funding for them to go do the work that God had stirred their hearts to do. What's the bottom line there, Gary? Everybody had a role to play. Everybody had something to do as God was up to something in their midst that he was trying to have this temple rebuild. And I think that's the beauty of being a part of a church family. Like God calls us in different ways to participate in his activities here in our church or any church that you're ever a part of. You don't get the option of whether you should participate or not. It's just how, what's the role you're invited to play? See, my needs and my preferences and your needs and your preferences aren't the litmus test for should you participate in God's activity. The answer is always yes. It's just how. Like some people were part of the building. Some people were a part of the giving. Maybe, maybe when it comes to like Pathways Kids, there are some people that are called to hold babies and love on them or teach little kids. And you might be like, that is not what God's called me to do. But You may serve in another area or you may give of your finances through tithes and offerings and you are funding this mission that is happening through Pathways Church where little ones are getting a glimpse of the heart of God because of what you are doing. And I wonder how many 
under Babylonian captivity felt the stirring and they just pushed away from it, maybe didn't participate. I wonder how many ignored God's tugging on their heart. Maybe there weren't any. It's not up to me to discern what God's calling you to do. But the new beginning that Jesus wants to bring you into today, and as we explore this series, and the new beginning that he wants to prepare you for, is so that you can step into the destiny that God has designed for you. There's an interesting parallel, I think, in this story that's a good place for us to start this morning. God moved their hearts to have his temple rebuilt. God moved on the hearts of these people to have his temple rebuilt. Why? Well, this temple, as I said, was the place where heaven sort of touched earth. It's the place where worship happened. It's the place where priests would offer sacrifices for the forgiveness on behalf of the people. God moved on their hearts to facilitate this place where he could be with his people. But today, as we step into this new covenant, this new testament, well, Jesus established a different kind of mission in saying that I'm gonna make you a temple. And so God wants to move on your hearts in order to build you into being his temple. God wants to move on your hearts in order to build you into being his temple, his place where his presence can reside, where you can become a Romans 12 living sacrifice offered to him, where you can have kingdom-minded living be the thing that would flow through you, where you would house him. That's the new beginning that I know that he has for all of us. You want to know why? Because I know that there are areas in my heart, there are areas in your heart that don't quite look like Jesus yet. And he wants to work in it. He wants to refine it. He wants to change it. He wants to expand it. He wants to tear down. He wants to rebuild so that we look more like him. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. If you call yourself a Jesus follower, this is the mission day in and day out that we are invited to avail ourselves to him to say, we want to be part of the beginning. We want you to do your work. You're the author. You're the perfecter. You're still at work in me. So I'm going to close our time this morning by just giving you a question to consider. As we launch into this series about new beginnings and we look at how God moved on the hearts of his people, what's the thing, the new beginning, what is it that God wants to restore and rebuild in your life? What needs to be rebuilt in your life? It could be something with your identity. Maybe you've experienced a lot of hardship and you've stepped away from being the man or woman that God has cosmically designed you to develop into. Maybe you need to have trust rebuilt and seeing him as the promise keeper who is faithful to his word. Maybe you need to have some dreams kind of rebuilt because you had some dreams that sort of fizzled and maybe you closed the door on them and threw away the key. Like that's never gonna happen. Maybe God wants to stir on your heart to re-engage some dreams that he'd put inside of you. 
Maybe he wants to rebuild some hope in your life where it's evaporated because of setback after setback after setback after setback and disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. Maybe he wants to rebuild a passion uh, for him in your relationship and in your faith walk. Maybe he wants to expand the the compassion in your heart, your capacity to, to, to have his heart for other people around you. Maybe there's some some sins, some attitudes that he wants to tear down, that he wants to free you from, some addiction cycles, some some patterns that he wants to, to tear down so that he can rebuild a stable foundation that won't be blown when the winds of life come and the difficulties come because it's built on the rock of who he is. I want to give you some space to kind of do business with God where you can consider that question and ask, What needs to be rebuilt in my life?